Barbara Kingsolver is the author of 10 best-selling works of fiction, including the critically acclaimed Flight Behaviour, The Lacuna and The Poisonwood Bible. Through these novels, she has brought us into the world of an American missionary family in the Congo in the 1950s, the Mexican home of artists Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo in 1940, and back home to the Appalachian Mountains to explore climate change. Her work of narrative non-fiction is the influential bestseller Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, A Year of Food Life. Her new novel, Demon Copperhead, marks something of a departure for King Solver in that it is a retelling of the Charles Dickens classic David Copperfield. Set again in Barbara's home place of the Appalachian Mountains, we are in the 1990s. Our hero, Demon, escorts us on an unforgettable journey through the perils of foster care, athletic success, addiction and disastrous loves in his quest to find himself. Delighted to have Barbara Kingsolver join us from Virginia uh, this evening on Arena. I suppose, Barbara, the the first and most obvious question is uh, why David Copperfield? Why that particular Dickens novel? What sent you there? Well, that is a good question because it was certainly not my point of origin. And I would also say this is, this, this novel doesn't feel like a departure for me because it's set right where I live, in the mountains of southern Appalachia, the very southwestern tail of Virginia, which is kind of the forgotten country. Um, and it happens to be ground zero of the terrible opioid epidemic that we have been suffering in this country since the 90s, um, since the the, the poison pill, OxyContin, was rolled out and really targeted for this region. Um, kind of the latest of a long series of exploits of this region. Um, so I, that was my point of origin. I wanted to tell the story of Southern Appalachia. And specifically, these kids, this generation of kids who are coming up here, um, they're in my neighborhood and in my schools, they are the lost boys and girls, they're, they're, they've been orphaned by, by the prescription drug epidemic that has left them without parents um, because they're, so many of their parents are addicted or incarcerated or dead of overdose. So that was the story I wanted to tell, and it's a grim story, and I spent a couple of years thinking about how mm. in the world <laughs> I can... Uh, Make this a story that people will want to read. And it, it just happened as a sort of a strange accident. I was in the UK for at the end of a book tour there for my previous novel. Stayed the weekend in at Bleak House, uh, which was an inn. It had been turned into an inn, but mm. it's the former home of, of Charles Dickens, where he wrote David Copperfield. And I, I had the place to myself, and I got to spend some time in his I mean, all the time I wanted, in his study where he wrote David Copperfield. And I just got this this, this sort of vibe, this Dickensian vibe, and realized this was his whole wheelhouse. This is what he wrote about, orphaned kids um, that fall through the safety nets of, of society, institutional poverty, and how it damages kids. That's his whole opus, yeah. really. But most of all, David Copperfield, which was his own story of his own humiliating experiences with, you know, with poverty in Victorian yeah. society. And I just got this message from him. He said, don't back down. Tell this story, but you let the kid tell the story. And I thought, 
All right, I'll tell. I'll let that boy tell the story, and I just invented my own David Copperfield and kind of just channeled that Dickensian outrage and kind of borrowed his yeah. plot. <laughs> yeah, because but, but I, if I, you're going to borrow a plot, you know Dickens is your man, yeah, right? Well, he's certainly going to give you plenty of it. There's no question about that. <laughs> but I, I have. I, I need to reverse just a little bit. You're in Dickens's study, and you get a message for him from him. Not on the telephone, not a letter sitting on it. What was the nature of the message? Was it a was it a voice in the head? Was it a okay. tap on the shoulder? <laughs> Good question. It was not Marley's ghost. <laughs> um, and 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 let me just stress that I'm you know I'm I'm a person with a scientific uh, scientific nature and a scientific training. I am not in the habit of speaking with dead people, um, but. In that place, with that preoccupation, sitting at his, literally at his desk, looking out the window um, at, the, at, at the roiling ocean, the same view that was in his eyes when he, um, wrote, when he wrote David Copperfield, I guess I just felt of one mind with the man. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, you know, just as I said, his outrage, his ire. And the nature of the message, I suppose, was the voice that was in my head all along saying, Barbara, don't back down from this story. This story needs to be told. But the extra magic that I don't think it did come from inside my head was the idea of letting the boy himself tell his own story, letting, telling this, telling this, story in the voice of the boy who um, yeah. who suffers and struggles and, and, and tries to survive and making him David Copperfield of, you know, of the 90s and 2000s in Southern Appalachia was just an inspiration that really came from outside of my... Um, my my own intentions, yeah, right. but I gobbled it right up. I started writing th- there and then on that desk. I I would venture to guess it might be the first novel that's been started on that desk since Dickens did it. There you go. And I, uh, I just had a great time. I mean, a great time is qualified by the fact that it's a grim tale, a lot of dark days. Yes. Thinking, you know, what am I going to put this poor kid through next? But it was. Also, like, really, mm. uh, just a, a new experience to write with Dickens at my elbow. I know. I just wondered about that. You know, t- when when Charles was speaking to you and suggesting that you might write this novel in this fashion, did he say, "Feel free, by the way, Barbara, to take chunks of my plot and use them," or did he say, "Feel free to take my plot and don't go changing too much. You can change the few names. You can change the setting." <laughs> You can bring it to 1990s Appalachia, Appalachia, as I was calling it, but Appalachia, as I hear you saying, it yeah, probably yeah. in the accent of your own people. Um, exactly. You know, what was What did the, he say? Yeah, did he what say? What did he say? Did, he, did, said, he said, darling, I'm dead. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Fair enough. But um, then I will ask you, since, since he didn't and since he was so giving, what was the nature of that relationship for you then between the, the plot of David Copperfield and and the plot of Demon Copperhead. I mean, we can hear the obviously the parallels in the two names. Um, was it a difficult transposition? Were there were there lots of changes that had to be made? Or was it actually just you were t- you were singing the same tune? You were just changing the lyrics and giving it a slightly different accent. It's it's well it, 
It was a ton of work, I'll tell you that. But the mo- and, and initially, I didn't really plan to stick that closely to the to the plot of the book. I didn't imagine that it would it would mm. really work to move a Victorian story into you know Southern Appalachia of modern times. I hadn't I hadn't read David Copperfield for quite a while, so of course to start with I reread it and I thought what a project this would be if I really take this plot chapter and verse and move it into modern circumstances it's like a translation and that's what I did I actually opened a you know an excel file and and filled in every cell for 66 chapters with a sentence of what happened in in Dickens novel and then a sentence below it, what will happen in my novel. And so the, I thought that the story architecture would work brilliantly, mm. and who's going to try to improve on the story architecture of, of Charles Dickens? You know, it's just it's this breathless plot. Every short chapter ends with a cliffhanger. It's, it's infused with these marvelous coincidences where characters run into each other unexpectedly. I, you know, that was really mm. exciting to me. So... I felt it was a master class, really, in Dickens, you know, to study this plot and see what really made the, it really cranked the engine, you know, kept it going. And I knew I needed that kind of an engine. And the voice, of course, was was purely mine. You know, Demon, the way he talks is the way that I grew up talking, and I know plenty of teenage boys, you know, even now, uh, who sound just like Demon with his, you know, including all of his F-bombs and his, you know, his attitude. <laughs> but, the, but the most interesting part to me was to take, you know, as I said, chapter and verse and think about how to translate that. Um, well, what is a modern equivalent? Well, is there child labor in my, in my county in this, uh, this very day? Mm. Yes, there is. Child labor is used in uh, a number of ways, including farm work. So, um, so the, uh, the uh, Mr. Creakle's, um, you know, home for yeah. indigent boys, his school, becomes a foster home run by a guy they call Creaky, yeah. this old uh, crotchety farmer who takes in foster kids solely for the purpose of using them as free labor in his tobacco fields. So that's a, you know, it's yeah. like... Uh, the shoe black factory where you know David Copperfield works. Where, what's the modern equivalent of that? Well, it's a it's a a, 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 a convenience market with a meth lab in the back. Um, yeah, so <laughs> where, the... He, where Demon is uh, put to work, you know, restocking and recycling trash in the back, and unwittingly helping the meth the yeah. meth cooker. Well, so was, was, it was was there it, a, go ahead go ahead sorry. It was just, it was kind of mind-blowing to me to see that all of the, you know, all of the, the social, the negligence and the, 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 the social ills of Victorian times can still be yeah. fine, can still be found in, in my own place and yeah. time, just with a different, with a different spin. But I, I, I suppose the, the, the temptation then is, or, or were, were there times when you found yourself saying, oh yeah, that's a great section in, in Dickens' David Copperfield, and that you start bending and twisting and getting bogged down in the detail of maybe he could, what he gave us around Victorian England and finding, you know what, there is no parallel here. You know, was that a, was that a difficulty or was that a danger along the way? It really 
wasn't because of the way I write. I'm a very um, sort of I'm a plotter and planner. I do a lot of story architecture, even you know in normal circumstances when I'm not following someone else's uh, you know outline. I always do a lot of plotting in advance. So I sat down with the whole story at once and looked at it, and I saw these large narrative arcs. For example, David Copperfield becomes, in his uh, in his journey, he becomes a writer. He works as a, a, a like a court reporter and then a, as a journalist, and then finally he you know he wins. He owns the day as a famous novelist because this is you know mm. this is Charles Dickens's kind of semi-autobiographical novel. That was not going to happen for my demon. My kid who is born to a teenage addicted single mother on the floor of her single wide trailer home is not going to grow up to be a famous author. That just wasn't going to happen. So I had to find some other art form that would compel him, that would pull him through his childhood, that would be his escape, and it would be his way, his little way of distinguishing himself among his buddies and then sort of get larger with an Internet following. And what I came up with was... He would be a cartoonist. Yeah. When he's when he's a kid, he he copies superheroes out of his comic books, and then he starts you know going off road and he makes superheroes out of his friends. You know he he look he sees the world in Marvel comic terms, which is so common yeah. for kids you know of, of this era. And it really made sense for Demon to see his aunt June, the nurse, as wonder woman in the er you know and he puts her in what he calls the bra outfit you know (laughs) he makes a real sexy wonder woman of aunt june and uh and he's always on the lookout for people's super superpowers and he's funny and he's insightful and i saw that this is going to be my version of demons you know pursuit of his art so i figured those things out in the beginning, and then I figured out, you know, sort of how to plug all the different characters in, and it was surprisingly, well, I won't say it was easy, but it was it, it, it was, was a good delightfully fit. fun mm. to, yeah, I, I never let myself get bogged down. I just found the things that worked and huh. ran with them, but I knew how it was all going to end, you know, yeah. and, and and that that gave me a lot of, um, you know, just. It gives you momentum as you're going to know you're going to stick the landing. Yeah. And then also, you, yeah, Creakle and Creaky Farm, Steerforth right. becomes Fast Forward, Uriah Heap becomes U-Haul Pile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot of fun. And, of course, David Copperfield becomes Demon Copperhead. Um, right. You had a lot of fun, I'm guessing, with those names. And there are other I, parallels as well. I did. And it was, it was it worked to my advantage that in this place where I live, it's a, you know, it's, we have our own culture here. And it's a, it's a you know, it's a, it's, it's a much, much mocked culture by the outside world. We're called hillbillies. But it's a beautiful and, and rich and funny storytelling culture. And one thing about us here is that people use nicknames, especially men, really often are, are known, you know, mm. by everyone, including their mothers, you know, and, <laughs> and their bankers and everybody, by a nickname like Stumpy or Shorty or U-Haul or uh, Fast Forward. <laughs> so it really helped me to take these, you know, these yeah. delightful, you know, Dickensian funny names and, and to be able it. to translate them into something that was, you know, that was that was appropriate, and it's also a little, you know, a little private joke. But uh, and I, I, I have to keep saying this over and over. 
to read Demon Copperhead, you do not need to know absolutely. David Copperfield yeah. at all. It, this my novel stands absolutely on its own legs. Um, so I don't care if you read David Copperfield. I mean, sorry, Mr. Dickens, but I mean, of course you should. But as far as my novel is concerned, you, you don't have to you have don't read need it. to read David yeah. Copperfield before or after. But if you do, you're going to be in on like a hundred yeah. little winky private jokes between yeah. <laughs> the, the other the, the, the man and myself. Yeah. Final question, if I could, um, Barbara, on you know because obviously the opioid crisis and and that whole unfortunate story, which has been so much in it's um, it's been there in books like Patrick Radden Keefe's Empire of Pain. It's been there in the the TV series Dope Sick, or indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Nan Golden's War Against the Sacklers, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, the upcoming documentary. But your own daughter, I, I think, has worked with uh, in and around that area of op- opioid addiction in, in young adults. I guess she was the one who was going to tell you if you were getting anything wrong in the midst of all of this updating. Well, I had plenty of, of informants and, you know, friends who, who um, I could interview for, you know, for various aspects of, of the book's accuracy, including I, I made friends with a physician who whose entire practice has become treating uh, um, addicted people in, in, through recovery. And so, yeah, I had to learn a lot about the social welfare system, about addiction itself, the specifics, you know, how do you get a pill into your veins? You know, just like tell me the stories. Mm. So, yeah, this, this crisis has gotten a lot of airplay, but what worries me is this. Mo- the big story that that you know kind of has controlled the airwaves is the the good guys and bad guys and the you know the lawyers pursuing the the Sackler family and you know ha- and how they they won and they how you know they've been brought down the and mm. what worries me is that people will say okay that's over and look away what's not over is a generation of kids living in my county and the neighboring counties, like up to 30 to 40% of kids in this region are being raised by someone other than their parents. That story's not over. That's with us. And I wanted to, I wanted to tell their story to create some, some understanding and some empathy for, for the real, you know, the real victims and the real survivors uh, who are the demon copperheads. And I suppose what's not over is what was happening in Dickens' Victorian England is currently happening in the United States of America and in many other places as well. Exactly. Lovely to speak with you, Barbara. Thanks for being with us this evening. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. Barbara Kings-Oliver talking to us about her novel Demon Copperhead, out now and published by Faber. Twenty-three and a half minutes almost past seven on Tuesday night, Serena. And as you may well know by now, this Friday, October the 21st, we will be live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera for Arena's RTE Short Story Special. We'll be there with the judges of this year's RTE Short Story Competition, Lisa McInerney, Ferdia McConnell and Eilish Nigivne. All ten of the shortlisted writers will be there. There'll be live music and extracts from the stories in live performance, along with insights into the art of the short story. And, of course, we will hear on the night who has won the big prizes, including the top prize 
of €5,000. All 10 stories are being broadcast here on RT Radio 1 at 11.20 every night as part of Late Date with Cahill Murray. Tonight's story is Big Why, Little Why by Brendan Killeen and I'm delighted to have Brendan join me now to talk a little bit uh, about it. Um, This really has the feel, Brendan, of, (laughs) for the most part, and I'll explain that as we go along, something that it feels like something that really did happen and I believe it's a father and son on a holiday and that was one of the starting points you on holiday with your son in Spain Uh, Yeah that's correct Sean it was actually exactly one year ago uh, this week it's the autumn holidays in, in Denmark the school holidays and myself and my son Noah took off to Madrid uh, for a week. Noah, who was 18 at the time, is doing Spanish in school. So we decided to go off and soak up a bit of uh, Spanish culture. And yeah, that was the kind of setting for the story. Yeah, and you, you were soaking up the culture. And again, this is, this is real enough. You went visiting some galleries. In fact, you went to see uh, Guernica, which you weren't expecting to see in the gallery that you went to see it in. No, I was convinced I'd actually seen it uh, at the United Nations, but I believe that was just a copy of the the actual original. So I finally, yeah, we finally got our act together and went to see one museum. And uh, I was surprised to see Guernica standing in front of me, which is a picture that I've loved since my school days, actually. I think it was on the front of my uh, art art history book in school. All right. So, so, so far, so real in, in lots of ways. But yeah. then the story takes a quite definite twist. Uh, let me explain because I'm going to play a clip now with Andrew Bennett reading. Um, there have been t- uh, there was and uh, you did overhear a conversation between uh, a husband and wife in front of Guernica, and you know the husband was being very literal and kind of belittling things, getting getting yes. messed up in the small things. All of that happened as well on this on this visit to the gallery <laughs> yeah. that day. It did. So I finally found myself standing in front of this painting and then a couple who were actually speaking Danish, which we can both understand, uh, started <laughs> arguing about the painting, which almost broke my heart. But my son thought it was hilarious. But uh, that, that was kind of the spark for the whole story. All right. So all of these things have happened and they're, you've realised in different ways in the story. However, the next bit, I'm guessing, didn't happen because in the same gallery, there is a, Mir- a Miro painting, which is your son's favourite painting, isn't that? Isn't that correct? It was the fa- it was his favourite one from the gallery. Yes. All right. So here's the moment when the mirror painting uh, around the corner from Picasso's Guernica, well, it comes to life. Let's let's have Andrew Bennett take up the story from there. Just then, there is a splashing commotion behind them, and people turn to see a great puddle forming at the bottom of the now largely empty frame in the adjoining room where Miro's man with pipe was framed. The pale, grey-blue puddle reforms itself as an amoebic blob and starts to make its way with great effort to the area in front of Guernica, where it eventually stops. The wife stifles a scream and grabs her startled husband's arm. Man with pipe says something in muffled Spanish into the ground. Nobody understands. The blob repeats itself louder. Help me! The blob finally says in heavily accented English, and the father and son kneel either side and gently assist it to an uncertain standing position. And that's Andrew Bennett reading from the story Big Why, Little Why by Brendan Killeen, who's joining me on the phone this evening. It's it's a wonderful moment in the story because you read it's one of the things you do, uh, Brendan, is this this flitting, I suppose, from a very real situation 
into a surreal uh, situation. Uh, you know, the, the 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 man with pipe becoming a a, a blob, really on the floor, and then uh, coming back up and talking to us in the other part of the gallery. What's the joy of that mix of rea- reality and surreality for you? You know, I can't. I suppose you know, I have two definite styles of writing and one is very observational and classical and very real and then I do have a tendency to break off into something a little uh, eccentric (laughs) I don't necessarily know why it happens but certainly that day when the setting is a modern art gallery I kind of felt I could indulge myself and it, it happened very quickly I mean I started writing the story on my phone uh, and it very quickly I had the couple arguing and then very quickly I had Miro's man with pipe turn, you know, ending up in it and I was thinking, right, where is this going? Um, and I just went with it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think there's something, it, it's it's a tricky business, this kind of magical realism turn because you can get it, you can get it wrong and sometimes I read it and I don't really like it myself. But I think, I think when you do ground it in a story that has, you know, it reassures the reader mm. enough uh, to go with you I think it can work. And I suppose tricky. part of it is if we look at the title of the story, Big Why, um, Big Why, Little Why, it's what you're looking at in some ways, you know, why can this not happen in the story? We, we can have sur- surreality yeah. and reality side by side. The guy in front of the, the Picasso painting is sweating the small stuff. There are questions in life that are more important than that. Well, I think I think all short stories are actually about time and the passing and time and mortality and things that are often very abstract when you think about them. But we we tend to not look at them too closely. And uh, I certainly think abstraction is a good way of focusing mm. us or making us rethink. And I think that the likes of Picasso and Joyce and Frida and these people were brilliant at shocking us for a moment to to reconsider yeah. the things that are right in front of us. And finally, Brendan, um, I don't want to give, there's a beautifully moving, touching sentence towards the end of the story with the father in the story admiring the son sitting across the table from him. Has your own son read this story yet? And is he aware of the, the love that comes off that sentence? He, he Well, he has because I sent it to him uh, before I sent it into the competition because I wanted him just to have a look at it because I was shortlisted before a couple of years ago and the story was read out and it only dawned on me at the last minute that people, you know, this was actually going mm. to be uh, broadcast. So I sent it to uh, my wife, my daughter and my son and got them to read it and he, he approved. Yeah, I'm not surprised he did. Any father, any son would would be deeply moved by it. It's a, it's a lovely it's a lovely moment in the story. Thanks for being with us this evening, uh, Brendan. Hope You're to right. see you on Friday and best of luck in the competition. That's Brendan Killeen talking to me about his story, Big Why, Little Why, one of the ten shortlisted stories for this year's RTE Short Story Competition in honour of Francis McManus. Uh, going out in full that story, and you can hear that beautiful sentence that I'm talking about uh, towards the end of the story. Late date tonight with Cahill Murray, 20 past 11 here on RT Radio 1 and all of this leading up to Arena's RT short story special live programme from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary on Friday, this coming Friday, 21st of October. Paviliontheatre.ie if you'd like to come along. Tickets are on sale now and you'll find out a link uh, where to buy those tickets on the website, the RT short story section of the RTE.ie culture forward slash culture, RTE.ie forward slash culture, beg your pardon, that's the website and you can read all 10 shortlisted stories there as well. Singer-songwriter Aoife Nessa Francis is back with her second album, Protector. It's out on October the 28th. She's in studio with me this evening and about to perform for us lead single from the new album. This is Way to Say Goodbye. Belong 
to say goodbye from Aoife Nessa Francis and that the opening track on her new album Protector and Aoife with us in studio this evening along with Brendan Jenkinson there who was performing on, on piano um, way to say goodbye um, I, when you open an album with a goodbye track that's kind of making a, a very well it's probably making a couple of statements Aoife What's it, what was the, the, the I suppose the idea behind that song and putting it at the top of the album like that um, I guess there, it wasn't it wasn't a really a decision we, I didn't decide to put it at the mm. top because it was a goodbye song it was just it felt like sonically mm. like it the right was the right it. place to come in it's like a strong song I think at the beginning um, so I don't think it was anything to do with themes or yeah but yes you, you, you are quite definitely <laughs> saying goodbye in that track there, it, there's, a, there's a sense so was there a spe- yeah. something specific that you were letting go of to move on from um, I not not particularly no I mean yeah it was like I think I was just you know I I use songwriting um as a way of processing things that I've experienced and also just kind of you know as a way to kind of understand like human experiences mm. in general and, um, I, and I guess the, this idea that I had was because uh, I know that you had t- spoken about the song and the album I think about it being about being about endings and new beginnings so I, I was thinking if you're saying goodbye in the very first track you're kind of allowing yourself. Were you, musically, were you trying to? Was it was it your desire to go to a new place, or was it just a, a point in life when you wanted to do something different? Yeah, I mean, everything was so uncertain at the time, and I found like songwriting was the only thing that. Felt I like presume a, this was all around COVID time that you were all, writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, around the beginning of the pandemic, um, and I found yeah, songwriting was like the most consistent, solid thing in my life. So. Yeah, it was just I was just writing to express. I I, mm. did, I didn't necessarily have set out with an intention to do something totally different. And did you did you head? Was it around that time that you went to spend some time in Clare? I think you you were telling me just before we came to her that you're kind of you're between the two places at the moment. Sometimes yeah. in Clare and sometimes uh, here right. in Dublin. But had you had you got out of the city to go to go back to Clare during the pandemic period? Um, I yeah, my dad lives in Clare, so I went to visit. I was only going to stay for like a week and then I just, I couldn't leave and I really fell in love with the place. And um, is it, was that, obviously living in the city and then heading to that, I mean, very dramatic and wonderful coastal situation that, that is in, in Clare, did that open up a, a new type of musical expression within you? I think so, yeah. I think being surrounded by that kind of nature and space, like, with nobody around was definitely affected like the lyrics that I wrote and the music that I that I wrote as well. I was I was interested too because I was wondering tonight I knew you were performing live and having listened to the album I was thinking there's a lot there's a lot on the album I mean it, it's essentially the song is the same song but there's a lot of texture in underneath things. Big, much bigger arrangements, yeah. We're doing a very stripped back version tonight, yeah. But it didn't feel stripped back. It felt, I mean, it felt full in a, in a, in a very good way. Um, I'm glad I, to hear. I, I'm guess that, I guess that's a big test for a song, isn't it? You know, yeah. when, when you do pair it back to just you on the guitar, Brendan on the piano, I know there's probably a little bit of synth in there in the middle of that somewhere. But is, yeah. th- that kind of, if there, if, there, if there are holes in the song, <laughs> they'll be gaping at us when you do it in that scenario, won't they? It's Yeah, it's true. Like, I mean, I've I've been doing a lot of solo shows recently. I've been touring a lot on my own and it's been interesting to play songs that I've written with, which have like huge arrangements mm. and strip them back. So it's been a, 
like a it's it's amazing to, that you get to reimagine you can always like reimagine songs and play them in so many different ways and i know you're you're heading out on tour both around here at home in ireland and and europe as well are you heading out as a big group or is it a small group is it going to be the paired back version it's like we're getting this evening doing from... it doing it with a band yeah ah, right. yeah yeah which with brendan and um yeah and, and we'll have like harp as well for some of the shows which is very exciting um but yeah, it, like it, I, I just love getting to play with other people. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose that that was again, given the pandemic period, getting back to the point of of that type of expression is is really important. Um, yeah, and you have some Irish dates. I'll give some details on those. But the second song that you're going to perform for us is Chariot. Will you tell me a little bit about this as we head into it? Yeah, so Chariot, um, Chariot was yeah, I wrote that while in in Clare and um. It's very much about that sort of that that period, that transition period of moving away from a city and kind of settling in the West. But it's about lots of other things as well. It's kind of just about transition and change and the power that can come with that. Yeah, and, and it strikes me that this song, particularly in the album, is a little bit more driven in terms of beat and, and percussive nature than, than some of the other yeah. songs, which are quite laid back, it has to be said. So mm-hmm. interesting that the percussion... The percussive element came when you were near the sea. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess you won't even get to hear that tonight, but (laughs) (laughs) hopefully we can carry that. (laughs) Within the body of the song. Yeah. Let's hear it, so Chariot. performed for us live this evening by Eva Nessa Francis and yes we did still get this sense of the percussive element within the song in, in that performance and that's from Eva's new album it's called Protector it will be released in all of its full arrangement glory on Friday week October the 20th you can hear Protector at that point and to coincide with the album Eva is going out, out on tour as I said Ireland and Europe full information and dates on her website, but in terms of Irish dates, um, 23rd through to the 27th of November, Belfast, Dublin, Limerick, Galway and Cork, various venues there. But all of that available on Aoife's website, aoifanessafrancis.com. Gavin Maloney is one of our most versatile conductors from his early days at the age of just 21 when he was assistant principal conductor with the then RTE National Symphony Orchestra conducting to conducting Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake with Ballet Ireland and to interpreting the songs of Leonard Cohen at the New Music New Dublin Music Festival earlier this year. He has led orchestras through the most diverse of musical repertoire. Gavin has also worked with an equally diverse cast of musical greats, including violinist Maxime Vengerov, who was with us just a couple of weeks back, pianist Barry Douglas, contemporary Irish artists like Mick Flannery, Lisa Hannigan, Denise Chaya, as well as traditional legends like Liam O'Flynn, Paddy Maloney and Erla O'Leonard. And that diversity certainly 
compliments him in his new role and will be useful there. Just announced as Associate Principal Conductor of the RTE Concert Orchestra and delighted that uh, Gavin is with us in, in studio this evening. And I mentioned all that diversity and all that um, cross-genre thing. Now, the, the Concert Orchestra, very well known for how they can switch right across all those all those genres and styles of music, Gavin. But I guess as a conductor, you you have to be able to do them all. I think so, yeah. Um, uh, I think uh, for orchestras globally, actually, uh, regardless of their funding model, then uh, we have to embrace uh, diversity in repertoire and be very creative about our approach. And the concert orchestra in particular, I suppose, has that, it, it, it has that link with radio and that link to broadcast, which... You know, you're 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 often broadcasting to quite a diverse audience in that. Yeah, concert orchestras are amazing. They're uh, hugely versatile, and because they're a broadcast uh, a broadcasting orchestra associated with RTE, um, they have phenomenal outreach and uh, a huge range of different kinds of projects. So that's really exciting for me. I mentioned uh, 21 that you were working as, as a conductor. That's quite young, really, because normally the conducting comes after a, an instrumental career of some kind or, you know, some time spent in an orchestra, possibly, and then maybe moving up to taking up the baton a little bit later in life. Not so in your case. Well, in a way it was. I started playing the violin when I was three. Um, oh, three from 21 is yeah. 18. <laughs> so I had been a musician for most of my life and I took up the piano in my teens and I had played uh, in orchestras um, right from National Youth Orchestra of Ireland. Mm. Um, so I had been uh, a musician for as long as, as I could remember and uh, I had actually the a kind of, uh, I'd wanted to be a conductor very young. I was going to ask that. How how soon, I mean, were you sitting in the ranks? Well, it was violin you played, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. violin, yeah. Uh, were you sitting there in, 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 the, in the desks of whatever, first or second violins, thinking, no, I want to be up there. <laughs> yeah, I heard, actually, I heard there was a, a Channel 4 um, programme called Orchestra and uh, George Schalty was the conductor and Dudley wow. Moore presented when I was very, very small. And it was a kind of guide to the orchestra. And that's when I first encountered um, Wagner, Brahms, Bach, and it was just the the sound of the orchestra that captivated me, and I thought, it, it, like taken collectively, all the instruments make the most incredible single mm-hmm. instrument, and I thought to to be able to influence that um, would be very special. Yeah, because there's often this thought, I think, uh, around conducting that it's about control and that it's about ego, but in fact, I, I would guess you would tell me it's it's about neither of those things. Uh, no. Um, well, in that sense, there's a difference between uh, controlling people and being in charge. And there's a sense in which the conductor is the mind of the orchestra. Mm. And really to get people um, to play very well together. Yeah. No, I don't think control, I would call it control. But um, yes, kind of first among equals in a way. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying too, what you, what you said about the orchestra is interesting. It's about taking all of those instruments and making one big instrument that is bigger than the sum of its parts. Absolutely. Like, I mean, what drew me to it was the production of sound, but the, the conductor, ironically, is the only person who doesn't um, produce any sound unless it's mm. some involuntary singing or something like that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, the, the, I, was, I was asking to you before we came to where, as this in this new position then, how involved would you be in, you know, programming the orchestra and kind of looking at the type of repertoire that they're playing and... I suppose, both expanding what they're doing 
and concentrating on certain elements of it. How, how involved will you be in the day-to-day decisions around well, that? I'm, I'm relishing the prospect of being more involved because it's it's a different role to being um, a guest artist who, who comes in you do uh, infrequently. Yeah. yeah, and so that side I'm really looking forward to. And we have some really exciting things uh, coming up, some really exciting projects Um uh, in uh, in March, actually, we're going to have the first ever collaboration between the, the concert orchestra and Moving Hearts, and that's going to take place at the Borgosh Energy Theatre. Seventeenth um, and eighteenth of March. I that's mean, right. um, what a period for for a collaboration like that to, to take place. But this is, you I mean, if you think of you know what what you did on on Culture Night, actually, which I think was one of the first gigs you did as in this in the new post uh, at Lochbura, where you had Tola McKay, you had Elaine May, you had May Kay, you had Martin Hayes, you had Jack O'Rourke. That kind of crossing, getting rid of that boundary between in big inverted commas classical music and in big inverted commas pop music, trying to meld those two things together. It, I guess that's a big function of the orchestra and in the sort of programme that you're going to be involved in. Yeah, I think the way to achieve that is not to get stuck to labels or confined in yeah. boxes, but just to think about music as good and bad rather than um, too, too genre specific. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I'll play a little piece of music. Um, you worked with Bill Whelan some years ago, the world premiere of, of a concerto, Linen and Lace with uh, soloist Sir James Galway. Tell me a little bit about that experience back in 2014. Um, that was great. Artie had uh, commissioned Bill Whelan to write a concerto for for uh, James Galway and he was involved in the in the creative process. So um, uh, we had a great time. We premiered it in Dublin and uh, in Limerick. And of course, James Galway was one of the people I had seen on telly when I was aspiring yeah. conductor when I was very small. So that was a pleasure. All right, let's have, let's have a listen to a, a little bit of the second movement. Linen and Lace, I suppose it's a reference there to uh, to James Galway and Belfast, I presume, is what we're, what we're talking about. That's what they, Bill Whelan was touching on. Here's a, a touch from the second movement then. Flavour there of Linen and Lace, the second movement of that concerto composed for uh, James Galway on flute and indeed the RTE National Symphony Orchestra it was that we heard there conducted by David Brophy in that uh, lyric recording of the concerto. And with me in the studio this evening is Gavin Maloney, who has just been announced as Associate Principal Conductor of the RTE Concert Orchestra, who were associated with the with the. Uh, early part of that or the premiere of that particular work. Um, I was also interested in, in I know around that was, was it about a month back or two months back maybe at this stage you were involved in the performance of the, the music of Room for the film Room with Lenny Abrahamson uh, and I think John Kelly was there on the night as well so there was chat about the film itself and then the film was screened and the orchestra were playing the music live underneath it. This must be a kind of slightly scary experience because you can't stop the film and start again. It's kind of you have to be with it. What are the challenges there? It's uh, it's becoming increasingly um, popular to have these live screenings with the orchestra uh, perform the soundtrack. And one interesting aspect is that I guess a lot of films are not 
uh, planned. The composition isn't planned with a view to doing it live with an orchestra. So <laughs> when the, originally the session musicians record the soundtrack, then a lot of changes can happen in uh, post-production. So what you end up with uh, the soundtrack on the film isn't written down anywhere necessarily. So there's a kind of a detective job sometimes to, to say exactly how was that put together. And then the second aspect is the coordination of having the, the time code and making sure that all events what happen you're playing when they're supposed to. matching yeah, exactly. what's happening on the screen and speaking of film music let's have a little blast of this beat Ennio Morricone and you certainly can't uh, beat the, the score for uh, Cinema Paradiso and that is um, the, the who we got have you playing there just the main theme from the Ennio Morricone Orchestra themselves but I play that please Gavin because you and I will be involved in a performance of that piece on November the 24th Looking forward to it very much um, on the 24th we're in the National Concert Hall and we've got a movie masters uh Program You can hear that and you can hear Shawshank Redemption, Star Trek, Jurassic Park. And I believe it's nearly sold out. So yeah. I recommend people um, get on get to on the to website the, and, yeah. and, and deal with things. Yes, and I'll be presenting on the night. So we'll, we'll have a bit of fun. I'm going to be checking out your acting skills as well as your conducting skills. I look forward to that. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> it will be, it'll be a battle of the wits, I suppose, I, I hope. But congratulations on, on the appointment, um, Gavin. Lovely to have you in with us this evening. That is uh, Gavin. Gavin Maloney recently appointed a sensible assistant principal conductor with the RTE Concert Orchestra.